السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله وحده والصلاة والسلام على من لا نبي بعده أما بعد And so today we're going to be choosing uh, quite a, a number of emails. I'm going to lump them all together. Uh, a lot of people have emailed from around the world asking about a, a, a modern, um, you know, sad incident that has occurred. Uh, and that is uh, the the incident of the Islamophobic incident of Astaghfirullah uh, burning a, mes- a mushaf, you know, in front of a, a Muslim embassy in a Western land. Uh, and uh, around the same time frame that this happened also, uh, there was the issue of a professor here in America uh, displaying a picture. Picture of the Prophet in class, and that, uh, and then she was fired for this, and this caused a very large national conversation. Uh, Muslims, you know, pitted against others and whatnot. And so, uh, all of these emails, inshallah, will just be lumped together. And uh, generic question that what should Muslims in the West do? Uh, some generic advice: What should Muslims in the West do in the face of such blatant Islamophobic acts and in the face of religious hostility? Now, before I begin, uh, this question is being asked from within and answered from within a Western world a nation state paradigm. I am not discussing what Muslims in the Middle East or Pakistan or other Muslim countries should do. Uh, for those countries, ask your own ulama. So please understand, this is a question that is being asked by Muslims living uh, in the West and it is being answered uh, by myself who is born and raised in the West. And so we're answering it based upon our socio-political circumstances because this is something that varies from time to place to culture to uh, civilization. And there's going to be a number of points Uh, in response. Let us begin by stating that historically, religiously, theologically, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us about this reality and our Prophet has lived through a much worse reality. So don't think that this is new. Don't think that this is something that is unprecedented. It is explicitly mentioned in the Quran that this is going to happen. Allah says in Surah Ali Imran, At the very ending, the second to last page, You're going to be tested in your wealth and in your families, in your children uh, and yourselves and in your wealth. And you are going to hear both from the people of the book who held the book before you, the Jews and Christians, And from the mushrikun, much that is going to hurt you. Adhan kathira. You're going to hear, this is going to be verbal. They're going to do things and try to provoke you and say things that's going to hurt you. And what does Allah say? And if you are patient and you have taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then this is the height of good mannerisms. This is the essence of what is required. To show patience and to show ultimate restraint in the face of such blatant hatred. This verse came down, by the way, in Medina, by the way. So FYI, this is a Madani verse, Surah Al-Imran. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and there's a context behind it. In fact, uh, there's a number of stories mentioned about this, that uh, some of the groups of the Yahud, uh, you know, they uh, said very, very nasty things to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, to other Muslims, about the Prophet about the religion. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this verse here. And in fact, if you look at the entire of the seerah from the beginning to the end, you find various incidents and the Prophet responded in different manners. And again, I want to say very clear here that we're not discussing Islamic law today. 
and even those interpretations of Islamic law that are valid and legit and unanimously agreed upon, they don't apply in the Western world. But even before we get there, even before we get there, this notion that every single type of speech that we might find uh, offensive is treated in the same manner is disproven explicitly from the Quran and from the seerah of the Prophet We have multiple incidents of uh, blatantly Islamophobic sentiments being expressed to the Sahaba and directly to the face of the Prophet And the response varied from time to place to person to context. It's not all the same. A number of famous companions, their parents, their mothers even, both Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas and Abu Huraira in late Medina, Sa'd in early Mecca, and Abu Huraira in the very last year of Medina, their mothers were extremely abusive towards the Prophet explicitly. They would say extremely nasty things to their children in order to hurt their feelings. The purpose was blatantly Islamophobic. And the both of them came crying to the Prophet hurt. They didn't curse their mothers, spit in the face of their mothers, slap their mothers. They didn't do anything of this nature. They're hurt that why is my mother wanting to hurt me so much? And they both come to the Prophet and in both cases, you know, dua is made and they eventually end up converting to Islam. Subhanallah. What a beautiful story we learned from this. And again, you know, brothers and sisters, especially those that are on one strand and they're maybe wanting to criticize or whatnot. I'm not giving fiqhi rulings here. I'm giving you an incident of the seerah. I'm giving you straight from the seerah of the Prophet wasallam that this occurred in late Medina. Abu Huraira comes crying to the Prophet and says, Ya Rasulullah, it's gone. I can't bear this anymore. My heart is breaking. My mother has said things about you, about you, Ya Rasulullah, that is bringing pain to me. And he's crying to the Prophet and the Prophet raises his hands and says, Oh Allah, guide the mother of Abu Huraira. And Abu Huraira goes back and lo and behold, she has converted to Islam. Now again, please, I'm not justifying or legalizing or, or validating astaghfirullah. I'm simply telling you that every single instance is not treated in the same manner. And somebody who says something, you know, the mother of Abu Hurair, for example, is not treated like, you know, Ka'b, uh, Ibn Ashraf and others. The way Ka'b was dealt with was very different than the way the mother of Abu Hurairah was dealt with. Why, dear Muslims, think about this reality. And this is in Medina of the Prophet How much more so we need to understand that this is going to be a reality of history. And again, no validation. I'm simply telling you, when you have different faith traditions living together, what is going to happen? Allah says in the Quran, Don't mock their idols. If you do so, they will mock Allah and they will curse Allah without any knowledge. They're gonna do so unjustly. Allah is telling us to have a modicum of outer respect. Not that we actually respect the idols, but there is a way that you discuss. So we, and of course the irony is that we would never do anything like this to any other faith civilization ever. We would never do this. It's so subhanAllah in its own way sad, but it is also dignified. They can do everything. And you know, we are angry at what they're gonna do. But in response to this, we shall never go to one of their icons. We shall never go to, how can we make fun of any of their prophets? There are prophets. And even if, even if they were people of another, you know, paganistic, uh, tradition and whatnot, still the Quran tells us that don't say things against their false gods. 
because what's the point in doing that? You're gonna inflame them, infuriate them, and they will only know how to respond to your hatred with hatred. So the first point is that historically, dear brothers and sisters, the Quran says it's gonna happen. Theologically, the Quran predicts it's gonna happen. Historically, it has happened throughout all of times. I mean, throughout history, we've always had incidents of this nature. And there's, uh, I gave a lecture at another, you know, um, not in this, I don't have time to go here now, but when uh, the Muslims conquered Khurtuba and people began converting to Islam, the Spanish began converting to Islam. There was a series of very famous incidents uh, that are called the Martyrs of Qurtuba, where uh, Christian monks and priests would go into the streets right in front of the masjid after Salat al-Jumu'ah and loudly shout out very, very nasty things, you know, about Allah and His Messenger, intentionally trying to provoke the Muslims, and they wanted to draw attention to themselves. SubhanAllah, it's nothing new, and this is a phenomenon that actually is is is, is studied, and it is uh, it has been, much has been written about, you know, that phenomenon. Uh, 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 with regards to this point. So the point being that Allah has told us it's gonna happen. The Prophet himself dealt with it. So it's nothing new. Our second point here is that, you know, whenever anything of this nature happens, whenever anything of this nature happens, it is Islamic and it is a part of our Iman and it is a sign of our taqwa that our hearts are heard, are hurt. We should feel a type of inner anger and jealousy. Nobody should make you feel guilty about this. When somebody says nasty things about those whom you love, about your parents, regardless of what the law says, regardless of legality or not, you are going to be hurt. To not be hurt when Allah and His Messenger are slandered, wallahi, this is a danger to one's iman, right? When the Quran is burnt in order to desecrate it, and you know it is being done to desecrate it, wallahi, your heart should feel a sense of just, you know, your, your, your hair should be standing on end, and you should feel a sense of genuine anger. This is a feeling, and that is Iman. What you do with that feeling will vary from time to place. And generally speaking, my advice in the Western world is that we should respond to such blatant acts of Islamophobia with statements of wisdom. We should preach uh, how we feel. If they have the right to say some things, we also have the right to respond to those things. Now the wording of those responses, the people who say them, the proper way and manner to get across it, you know, the level of outrage and, 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 and the words that are used, this will vary from incident to incident. It's not a blanket statement. And every single community and every, you know, nation, you know, that uh, every Muslim of every, uh, the Muslims of every nation should come together and discuss amongst themselves, their leadership, their organizations, you know, their activists should come together and figure out what is going to be the best wording to use in this particular situation in order to create a positive perception rather than a negative one. Also, uh, the, the notion of, of protests should also come up. Again, I cannot give you a blanket you know, uh, statement because as I said, all of this goes back to the Islamic notion of pros and cons, what is called masalih and mafasid. And so whether there should be protests in various European countries, in America, outside the embassy or whatnot, this goes back once again to uh, uh, the, the specific incident and community activists and leaders of every single land of the Muslims coming together and discussing what is going to be the wisest. And it varies. If a nobody, anonymous, you know, a uh, person who doesn't have any track record of, he is not, he's not somebody who's known, does a one-off act of, of hate 
It's not the same as if a mainstream elected politician who is respected by large groups of the country, you know, makes an Islamophobic uh, act or something. It's not the same thing. So we weigh the pros and cons. We look at all of the factors and we assess what is the most judicious mechanism of responding. Verbally, protests, economic boycotts. Again, this is not something that I can give. I've, I, I have a longer, you know, a Q and A on this very Q and A series about the permissibility of econ economic boycotts as a principle. As a principle, there's no question that this is a type of soft pressure. Now, when is it judicious to use this? Is a whole different scenario. So. If a country has a public policy of Islamophobia, then perhaps it's a very different thing than if you know one you know minor person does something in the country to penalize the entire country. The people themselves might not like this person, but it is not against the law. They can do nothing. Again, you have to weigh the pros and cons when it comes to economic boycotts. But the option is there. the 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 tool is there. Whether we choose to use this tool or not depends once again on the pros and cons of the situation. So this is the second point. There should be some response. What that response is, come together and discuss amongst the leadership and weigh the pros and the cons. The third, one of the things that I can uh, definitely suggest everybody does, and we can do this on our own social media platforms. I do this all the time. Every single time something like this happens, you know, I do this uh, myself. And that is do your research, do your homework, Ask the specialists and point out the hypocrisy and the double standards of these types of countries and the laws of these countries. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you will always find double standards. You will always find blatant hypocrisy. So what might be allowed, quote unquote, in one land, you will always find similar things that are not allowed. And even if, by the way, the law might allow them, the people will not allow certain types of speech, certain types of outrage are, is not going to be allowed. And for example, in Sweden, in recently, three years ago, a, a certain government body banned over 15,000 uh, public uh, social media accounts because they were far right and they were spreading according to this uh, you know uh, agency they were spreading hatred of minorities and of immigrants and uh, they were using language that was deemed to be demeaning of minorities some of which was Islamophobic language and they were using uh, they were spreading hatred and there was a fear that this might inc uh, incite you know violence so this entity the government entity banned these social media accounts they censored them they said these are preaching hatred many would say that's a welcome thing a good thing guess what happened these people went public and they raised a hue and cry that how come we don't have the right for free speech? How come we are being banned if we wanna criticize you know, other peoples and whatnot? How come the government is coming and taking our accounts away? So social media became uh, uh, this, this, this you know, uh, plaything between those who wanted to ban hate speech versus the broader society. And guess what? These racists won in the day and this government body without going to court silently withdrew and gave them all their accounts back to continue spewing their uh, hatred. Now the point being that why was why was some monitoring being done and these 10, 15,000 accounts are being banned by a government body that understands, hey, we don't want these, we don't want these far right people. We don't want them spewing hatred. And yet when it comes to something like this, 
you know, there there is that claim automatically without any court case, without any banning, that you can go in and do something like burn a masjid, burn a mushaf in front of, you know, a Muslim embassy. So you will always find this, you know, you're always going to find these aspects of, of uh, hypocrisy in any society and culture, and we point it out. So this is the third point that I can advise everybody to do. The fourth point is that it is important for us as well to understand when something is really meant to be Islamophobic and insulting, and when it is something other than this. Not every single act is the same. In fact, we know this about the Quran burning. When it comes to burning the Mus'haf, SubhanAllah, if a pious Muslim takes an old copy of the Mus'haf and it is worn and torn and he's read it a gazillion times and you know now he cannot use it anymore. If he burns the Mus'haf, it is an act of worship right here. And the same act when it is done by a far-right Islamophobe in order to insult the Muslims, it becomes the height of blasphemy and kufr. So, niyat, intentions are important to bring in. And we look at the context, we don't just react you know, emotionally. In fact, if you read the Quran, brothers and sisters, inevitably you will read statements that if you cut off the beginning and end, it can easily be misinterpreted as, you know, very negative statements. You will read Fir'aun saying, I am your Lord. You will read, you know, Iblis accusing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of misguiding him. All of these are in the, 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 the Quran here. The point is that, you know, the Quran itself tells us that when you argue with the people of the book, argue with them, jadilhum, in the best of manners. Now, I ask you, visualize this verse in action. A group of Muslim scholars and a group of Christian clerics are going back and forth as per the commandment of the Quran. What will the clerics say? Are they going to be politically correct? When the clerics are defending Christianity and refuting Islam, the Quran says, argue with the Christians and the Jews, argue with them in a wise manner. Allah is telling you, if you're qualified, then have a debate with them in a good manner. Okay, I ask you by Allah, when a learned Christian comes and he wants to defend his faith and refute our faith, what do you expect him to say? Do you not understand he will utter words that are deemed to be blasphemous by us? What will he say about the Quran? What will he say about the Prophet And Allah is saying, respond back in a manner that is wise. So in the context of a debate, in the context of a back and forth, it is understood that your opponent will say things that are very hurtful and painful, and you are required to defend your faith in a manner that is best. Allah Himself has sanctioned this back and forth. My point being, I bring this up because a lot of people brought up the question of what happened here in America. For those who are not aware, uh, a college professor, a university professor, was teaching a class about Islam. She brought up the controversy about what happens when you show the images of the Prophet Wasallam, And she made a disclaimer in the class that, you know, I'm gonna show some images. Some people might find it offensive, but I'm doing this for educational moment to show you there's diversity of thought within Islam. And then she said, I'm, the images I'm gonna show you were drawn by Muslims themselves from another sect, not Sunni Islam. Uh, and she showed these images in class. By and large, these images, they're all drawn by Muslims. You know, again, whether you like it or not, whether I am a Sunni Muslim, I don't agree with these images. Uh, but let's, again, factually speaking, there are non-Sunni movements, you know, Shia and others, Shia and others, because there's others as well, that not only allow, you know, drawing the Prophet they embrace. And if you go to any museum in the world of Islamic art, you will find paintings in there that Muslims have drawn, not my strand of Islam, not the 
strand that I think is correct, but you cannot negate that these Muslims did exist. So she showed those images drawn by people who said the kalima prayed five times a day. And according to their understanding, these are images that will bring love. These are images that, you know, they're supposed to uh, make you draw closer to uh, the concept of the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ and loving him. And in this context, then some Muslims objective and objected one thing led to another. She was fired in this regard. Now, I state here that for the record, I don't agree with showing such images. I think it is haram to do so personally, but on what basis am I going to ban a college professor to say that it is haram? She's an American college professor. What am I going to say that is going to be a, an effective mechanism? Also, without a doubt, in the context of what happened here, you cannot equate what she did with the Quran burning in Sweden. She did it in an academic environment, wanting to show the diversity of thought, giving an adequate disclaimer. I personally disagree, but you cannot equate this this as an act of hate. It's really not an Islamophobic act per se at all. And uh, there are other things involved as well that most people who got into this controversy and commented had no clue of them is the way how uh, administrations t treat their uh, their faculty that are not tenured. And this is something I know personally as well that, you know, when you're not a tenured track, you know, professor, you are really treated like manual labor and you're really disrespected and there's no rights. And this lady was actually non-tenured track. and. Uh, uh, there was probably more to it at stake than just this issue. Perhaps the university is using it as an excuse to get rid of the contract because again, I know those tensions because I was in that world for a period of time. And most people on the outside had no clue that it was very likely that the university had no care about Islamophobia, but rather they were just wanting to get to, to get rid of the contract and, and, and move on. And you know, they jumped on this for their own agenda. My point being that my, this fourth point here is that we need to be wise enough to differentiate when is something Islamophobic and when is it not Islamophobic, even if it not, might not be justified. I don't like the fact that the image of the process was shown. If I could, I would not do that, but I can't in this country that we live in, in the society we live in, as a professor, she has that right to do. And within the context of what she's doing, you understand where she is coming from. It's literally like trying to teach about, you know, anything that the Salman Rushdie affair. Right, and suppose if you don't know the Salman Rushdie affair, that somebody who wrote a very Islamophobic, you know, book back in the eighties, as a professor, I have had to teach about the Salman Rushdie affair. My students in university had no idea who Salman Rushdie was and what the affair was, what the Salman Rushdie affair was. I had to summarize the book Satanic Verses to them. Right now, is this Islamophobic? Can a Muslim come and say, Astaghfirullah, Shaykh Yasir, you mentioned Salman Rushdie's name and you mentioned the satanic verses and you summarized it for the class. You have to look at the context. I'm teaching the students about an incident that happened in 1988, 1989. I'm teaching them the realities of how the Muslim community galvanized, you know, the pros and cons of what happened, you know, the effects of this, you know, historic, because I've taught class, I, if you're not aware, I've been a university professor and I've taught classes to the, you know, uh, uh, non-Muslim students on campus. And as a part of that, I have to teach a lot of things. So I've taught the history of, you know, uh, uh, Muslims in the West and various things that have happened. And so for example, I've had to teach about uh, this incident, about, uh, uh, Khomeini's fatwa about other things that took place. Can somebody come and say, oh, because you summarize this, you are agreeing with it. SubhanAllah, no. So we also have to be a little bit more wise here, brothers and sisters, and not lump everything together. In my humble assessment, what happened uh, in this American university, 
even if I personally as a Muslim don't like it, uh, it is in a completely different category, completely different category. And in fact, we should not use the word Islamophobia. And uh, uh, I did not personally agree with the firing of this uh, professor. It should have been handled in a different manner. And we cannot equate this with the Quran burning that took place in Sweden or anything that is uh, blatant of this nature. We do need to look at context, as I said. And this is something that the Quran itself clearly indicates, as I explained, when it comes to the verse of, for example, Mujadala or going back and forth, Allah Himself sanctions a debate, a closed debate between uh, scholarly people. In this debate, it is understood that statements are going to be said that are clearly heretical, that are clearly blasphemous. What do you expect a Christian priest to say about, you know, the Prophet when he's debating? He's going to say things that we will find extremely offensive. It's our job to then defend academically. The, the way to defend is not to punch him in the face, right? The way to defend is not to ban the preacher from uh, a debate that is private. Allah has said, have a debate with them and make sure that, you know, uh, you do it in the best of manner. So Allah has allowed this to take place because that's the only way forward in this regard. So context does matter, like I am saying here. This is my uh, fourth point in this regard. The fifth point is that in all of this, we should always look at the long-term goal. We don't want to exacerbate the situation. We don't want to cause a backlash that is even more painful than the original incident. We don't want to create a negative perception of our faith of our Lord, of our book, and most importantly of our Prophet Sallallahu that will damage Islam more than the initial incident. And most importantly, we don't want to cross the lines of the Sharia that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has laid down. And I've said this multiple times over and over again, vigilante justice or violence against such people in the lands that we live in is not something that any alim worth his salt can give a fatwa for. It is not allowed in any circumstance to become judge, jury, and executioner, even in Darul Islam. And in, in a land that is not the Darul Islam, there is nothing that can be done. And if one does so, then one is disobeying the commandments of the Sharia because the backlash against the Muslim community will be more, uh, you know, will exacerbate the situation and bring about more harm than any initial aspect that took place. And subhanAllah, this reminded me of something almost a decade ago, uh, the uh, infamous, you know, Charlie Hebdo cartoons. Extremely, extremely vulgar, extremely derogatory. And uh, what happened after that, uh, when a group of people, you know, invaded and killed and massacred and brought in weapons and whatnot, and they shed blood in this regard, what was the result of all of this? The backlash, the perception, the media, and of course, what do you expect them to do? Was this the wisest course of action? Do you think that by doing this, you have defended the honor of the Prophet ﷺ? Is this the way to defend the honor of the Prophet ﷺ in the long run, in the short run? So again, brothers and sisters, we need to be very clear in this regard that we the goal when it comes to responding to these issues is not just a reactionary emotionalism. The goal really is to think long-term and to minimize the damage. 
And I said this back then, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 10 years ago when the Charlie Hebdo took place. I said it back then. And when I said it, and I, you know, I don't like to mention these types of things because it is awkward, but, you know, for the record, you know, when I gave my khutbah that I gave after Charlie Hebdo, and I said that what they did, what the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists did was evil and vulgar, and they have to answer to Allah, and, you know, we, we, we despise what they did, and if they have the right to do it, we have the right to speak against them and tell them, call them preachers of hate and whatnot. But then I also said, what these people did in killing them, what these people did in attacking, what these people did in bringing, you know, uh, the violence that they did, it has damaged Islam. And it has damaged the image of the Prophet and the honor of the Prophet more than those cartoons. I said that and I meant it and I still mean it. In the broader society, in the world that we live in, the people go about their day and these cartoons are not going to shape their impression of the Prophet But when five Muslims take the law or their version of the law into their own hands and these five Muslims commit these acts of violence, those five Muslims will actually shape the perception that millions of people have about our Prophet I said this factually and because of this, this radical group known as ISIS literally announced that people should go and assassinate the preacher, meme yours truly, and a call was made to go and kill. What type of version of Islam is this? SubhanAllah, what fanaticism, right? We we'll all love the Prophet wasallam. we all love the Quran, but when you let your emotions go without being checked by the law, then those emotions can easily lead to a type of fanaticism that the average person, the average Muslim recognizes to be something that is completely un-Islamic. So my fifth point here is that whatever you do, don't just react for the one step. Think 10 steps ahead. Think what will be the long-term response to what we are doing. And this leads me to my sixth point. There's seven points as usual. I try to summarize in seven points, a lot of things. My sixth point is that, O oh Muslims, don't presume that any one group of people are the final experts in what to do. A lot of people ask me, so I'm giving you some response, but listen to my sixth point. Don't just ask ulama and preachers. Don't just ask people who are trained in Islamic law. That's one group of people you should be asking. But along with that, speak to other experts. Speak to lawyers. Speak to lawyers who understand the laws, the constitution of the country. Speak to community activists. Speak to Muslim politicians or Muslim sympathetic politicians. Speak to those engaged in PR and understand that all of us have to come together to craft the best solution. Religious clergy need the benefit of political activists and political activists need to understand the concerns of the religious clergy and come together, we will be stronger for the ummah. I have said one of my pet peeves, I've said this in so many talks and lectures and every time something like this happens, I'll continue to say it, that unfortunately, we see a divide that is unhealthy in our own ranks, a divide between the religious, the outwardly pious, pious, pietistic folk, the masjid going folk, the clergy and between those Muslims who are proud to be Muslims, but they might not be as religious in their own lives, and they're active in politics, so active in PR, they're active in, and these group have the greater clout. They have the greater understanding of society, whereas the masjid going folk are the default and backbone of the ummah. The two need each other, right? These 
Muslim politicians, these Muslim PR, these Muslim entertainers, you know, they might be popular in broader society, but generally speaking in the Muslim world, amongst the pietistic folks, they're not that popular. Amongst the, you know, uh, uh, people that are frequenting the masjid, they're not that popular for obvious reasons. Each one needs the other. We have to break down this animosity and understand that for the greater good, we have to learn to cooperate together. And these experts are going to be better positioned to tell us what to do depending on our circumstances. Here in America, for example, it is impossible to ban such type of activities and speech unless there is a radical change in the constitution and in the fundamental bill of rights, which hasn't happened for many, many, many you know, decades. Unless the Bill of Rights is changed, there can be no law. And so it's therefore sometimes, you know, when I hear some Muslims say, oh, we should ban this and whatnot. I mean, again, with utmost love and respect, it simply shows that, uh, and sometimes these are American Muslims, I say this, that they don't know their own constitutional law. They don't know, know their own Bill of Rights. In America, you cannot ban any type of speech per se that is going to offend other people, that people will find offensive. In fact, you cannot ban the burning of any books. You know, in our in this country, the Constitution, the Supreme Court allows you to burn not just the Bible, to burn the the uh, the flag of America. You can burn an American flag in America and not go to jail. So the laws are very different in this land. It's never going to be a political ban unless those laws are radically changed. And uh, they're not going to be in the foreseeable future changed uh, just because we uh, want them to be changed. However, that is not the case in Europe. In Europe, it is a fundamentally different land. There is no constitution. There is no Bill of Rights the way that it, it, it exists in America. And in Europe, there are many different models. A vast majority of European countries ban what they call hate speech. So hate speech is banned technically. So the lawyers of those countries need to work. How can we include burning of the Mus'haf within hate speech? This is a legal you know, uh, uh, issue. You getting angry and, and shouting on the street is not going to bring this legal reform. Get some constitutional lawyers, hire them, pay the best lawyers in the country, those where it is allowed to ban certain types of things and say, hey, if hate speech is banned in so many of these European, um, so many of these European countries, well then what do we need to do to make the burning of the Quran also qualify as a hate speech? Because right now in no European land does burning of a book constitute hate speech. But you know, in some lands you can change this within the system. So rather than just getting angry at me or other people whom you think are ultra soft, get involved in some actual activism, get involved with actual lawyers, get involved and speak to those that know the, the, the inner realities of, 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 of law and ask them, what can we do? What can we not do? I'm telling you point blank as an American, you can't do anything legally in America. You just can't. Legally, there is nothing that can be done to ban this type of stuff. Uh, but what you can do is socially create awareness. That's a whole different, that's a whole different category. We're going to come to this point in the uh, final point here. But in Europe, that's not the case. Around 15 European countries have criminalized Holocaust denial. Now, this is a very sensitive topic. I've said this multiple times. I've visited Auschwitz and Dachau. You know, I've seen myself the uh, horrors of the Nazis. I've seen myself the realities of what took place and, and the remnants of their, you know, camps and whatnot. And I have said multiple times that, you know, uh, what happened was an atrocity of the highest magnitude. And if I had been alive in 19... 
30s, you know, Germany as a Muslim, and what was happening was happening, I would expect Allah to reward me if I were to hide the innocent people, including the Jewish people of that time. If I were to hide them and protect them, I would expect Allah to reward me because what happened was an injustice. Now what happened afterwards in Palestine, Israel is a different type of injustice. But the Nazis, what they did was the height of injustice. I've said this a lot of times here. That having been said, we also point out why is it a criminal offense in 15 European countries? You will be fined and or go to jail. And people have gone to jail for saying things about the Holocaust that were deemed to be offensive. Now, as Muslims, we say with utmost respect, look, we also don't want to make fun of people who died. It's very rude and crude to do so. We also don't want to, you know, uh, 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 support people that are denying the Holocaust. But with respect, May we ask, why is this speech criminalized? And speech that is equally, if not more offensive to another religious minority is deemed to be free speech. We have to, we have to point out the double standards legally in those 15 countries. Why aren't there massive movements to decriminalize the Holocaust, you know, ban denial? Why is there no freedom fighter saying, I want to have the freedom of speech to do so? You don't find anything of this nature. So don't you see for us as Muslims, when we see this double standards, the sheer blatant hypocrisy, can't we not, if you're not gonna ban the Holocaust denial, you're gonna say that's you know a criminal offense. Well then may we, we'll keep it a criminal offense. I'm actually all for it. Let's keep it a criminal offense, but then add as well to insult the Prophet Add as well to burn the Mus'haf intending to show disrespect. Why can't we add that to your list as well? If you were to do so, Wallahi, as I say, we as well want this Holocaust ban you know, denial in place. We don't want people to make fun of dead people. We don't want people to mock the 6 million that died but add some things that are precious to us as well and we will say you're being consistent and fair and we will uphold, we will also uphold that ban about the Holocaust. But if you're gonna pick and choose and you will make one faith and one group sacred and not another, don't you expect us to point out your hypocrisies? Don't you expect us to be at the forefront and say, hey, what is going on here? Why is one thing allowed and not the other? So this is my uh, uh, sixth point here and that is that be country specific bring in experts, bring in lawyers, bring in community activists, bring in PR personnel, bring in politicians, Muslim politicians and Muslim sympathetic politicians. And please, for the love of God, Muslims, please don't just ask your sheikhs about something of a political nature. I am telling you as a sheikh, I'm telling you as a person of Islamic law, don't just ask a person of Islamic law about something like this. Ask him along with many other people and the community has to come together, as I said, and form a more wise solution. This leads me to my seventh point, uh, final point inshallah ta'ala, and that is that all of this hatred and all of this bigotry and all of this Islamophobia should motivate us. Motivate us how? It should motivate us to work to eliminate that misconception and hatred. Wallahi, the only reason that such people are allowed to do what they do and are supported by large groups of people is because the broader society does not know our Prophet They don't know who he is. If they knew who he was, they would not allow their own people to do this. Dear Muslims, take the anger that we feel, the hurt that we feel, the frustration that we feel, take it and channel it so that broader society is made aware 
of the reality of what it means to be a believer in Allah, of the reality of who our Prophet was. If they truly knew him, wallahi, even if they didn't embrace Islam, the least is that they would support us in our rights to protect our Prophet Rather than look at this one deranged individual standing in front of an embassy doing an act that is sacrilegious, rather than looking at this one person as the cause, I urge you to look at this person as a symptom of a far greater disease. And I'm, I'm gonna be blunt here, Allah protect me, it might get me into trouble in some lands or whatnot because I've already had issues when I say these type of blunt statements, but wallahi, I don't understand why technically I should get away with that as freedom of speech, but I will say this. These acts, they indicate a society that has no conscience. Society. I'm saying this as a person who genuinely cares about all of these societies. For a person to openly mock God or a book of God or a messenger of God and the rest of society to applaud and to consider this to be an act of bravery is an indication that that society has lost its spiritual consciousness. It is the symptom of a dead heart. Spirituality has gone from the hearts of these people. The sad truth is that these societies no longer have a sense of awe of the divine. They have lost all respect of the sacred. And these same societies, if you dare, if you dare criticize aspects of sexuality, of licentiousness, of hedonism, of the pleasures of the body. If you dare defend the reality, the historic reality of marriage. If you dare point out the vulgarity and the abomination of unnatural unions. The same society that is more than happy to mock God and his messengers will call you a hate preacher. They will want to ban you as they have banned me in conferences and other places of this nature. And maybe even in a few years, in a few years, there's legislation being passed. You might go to jail in some European countries. Again, in America, that's not possible uh, as the law stands. But in Europe, this law is already being discussed and debated. The potential to jail somebody if they dare point out the abomination and the unnaturalness of unions that go against the historic nature of marriage and the biological reality of male and female. If you dare mention this, just to mention it, perhaps in a few years, you might go to jail. Where's the free speech over here? Wallahi, I say this as a token of sadness, that a society that embraces such hedonism and licentiousness while criminalizing any type of moral preaching and a society that pushes you to mock God and his messengers and to burn the holy books, whatever it might be, whether it's the Bible, whether it's the, the Quran, whether it's the New Testament, whether any holy book, a society that laughs and revels 
Because subhanAllah, no Muslim, wallahi, we don't believe in Hinduism or Buddhism, wallahi, no Muslim would go and burn their books in order to insult them because that's not what our religion has taught us. That's not the way we deal with disagreements. We don't burn or, or, or hurt, or we shouldn't. Maybe if some stupid person does this, he should be told this is un-Islamic. But as a law, as a, a, a clergy, as respected people, this will never happen. So for a society to embrace this brazen challenging of sanctity, of sacredness, while at the same time criminalizing morality, criminalizing decency. When I say that unions should only be between normal biological opposites, subhanAllah, it is possible I am called a preacher of hate. And when a person burns holy books and insults Allah and His Messenger وسلم, that person is called a defender of free speech. I say, Wallahi, the flip has script and the good has become evil and the evil has become good. And this is a sad, sad, sad reality and a damning indication of the reversal of what used to be a pure heart. Because these societies once upon a time, few hundred years ago, genuinely respected God, genuinely respected religiosity. Perhaps again, in their fanaticism, they went too far, but there was a genuine respect and, and awe of the sacred. Well, all of that has gone. And in its place, instead of deifying God, they have deified their lusts and desires. Instead of showing respect to the icons of God, they're showing respect to the worst manifestations of hedonism and licentiousness and fahisha and lustfulness, the most unnatural desires. That is what is being sanctified. And if you dare criticize those unnatural desires, it is quite literally as if you have criticized their gods. And that is why they want to cancel you as instantaneously as possible. These same societies that champion freedom of speech, even if the law allows certain freedom of speech, look how quickly they will cancel you socially, politically, maybe even legally if you don't live there. And myself and others have known this reality that we have been banned from conferences, uh, academic conferences because of a khutbah I might have given about marriage, about something of this nature. And the conference says, oh, you are considered to be a hate preacher because you think love should be, you know, between a husband and wife. Just because I'm preaching love between a husband and wife, this becomes for them hate speech. And people who are burning the Quran and people who are making fun of God and his messenger, they become champions of free speech, I say this is a sign of a dead heart, a dead society. Spirituality has died amongst them. And so my final point here is that there should actually be a level of sadness and compassion. Look at the reality of these people. They have lost their way. And if we are not going to understand this and attempt to guide them, in this world of complete insanity, when up is down and down is up, when right is wrong and wrong is right, when they've lost sense of what should be sacred, rather than making God and His icon sacred, they made the worst lusts of mankind sacred. In this society, if you and me are not going to stand up and gently and with wisdom preach the truth and be icons of virtue and demonstrate the reality of what it means to be religious in an irreligious world, to respect the divine in a world that has lost all respect for the divine, to be people of faith in a world that mock faith, that's my job and your job. And it's not an easy task. It's not an easy task, but this is the only task that we are tasked to do. It is the most important task. And so my final point to myself and all of you, 
Brothers and sisters, when you see such things take place, along with the anger, there should be a sadness, a genuine sadness about how lost spiritually these modern societies are. And that sadness should create in us an incentive to be shining role models, to be pillars of light, to be beacons of wisdom and spirituality and humanity. The world has lost its bearings completely. Its moral compass is gone. Allah has blessed us. We have the moral compass. We have to show them that compass. Some people will never accept, but some are searching for that compass. We have to demonstrate it for them. And when we do so, inshaAllah ta'ala, that will be our way of contributing to defend the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. O Muslims, stop being reactive. Every time something happens, every time an Islamophobic incident, we just are reactive, reactive, reactive. Stop being reactive. Start being proactive. Start planning, not one year ahead, 10 years ahead, 100 years ahead. Start spreading love of the Messenger وسلم, amongst the people such that they would never want this to happen and they would stop one of their own who does it. Work actively to raise awareness of who that man was whom Allah said, we have sent you as rahmatan lil'alameen. And when you do so, then society will genuinely begin to respect and will genuinely themselves not allow members of their own to do what we are doing. And the religion of Islam, inshaAllah ta'ala, will always be protected by Allah. Allah Azza wa promised us in the Quran, Allah is the one who has sent our Prophet with the correct religion. And this religion and the message of the Prophet shall indeed prevail even if those who hate it, hate it. Allah shall protect his religion. It is our job to do the best and the wisest to defend that religion. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless us all to be those role model ambassadors and to be emissaries of piety and God consciousness and mercy. Jazakumullahu khairan. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Have you ever wished that there was a Muslim version of YouTube or Netflix? Well, we have created one. The One Islam TV app has no adverts and is safe to browse for your peace of mind. Watch hundreds of high-quality produced Islamic reminders, Quran videos, stories of the prophets, hot topic, debates, and so much more. Four to eight new videos are uploaded daily, inshallah. You can watch or listen to videos while your device is switched off. Watch videos on demand or download videos and watch offline. One Islam TV is 100% run and owned by Muslims, which means the small amount you pay for your subscription is a sadaqah jariyah, continuous charity for you, as we use the funds raised to continue producing more beneficial videos and reminders, inshallah. The One Islam TV app is now available on Apple devices, Apple TV, Android devices, Android TV, Amazon Fire TV, and Roku. So you can watch on most devices and smart TVs. Download now for a free 7-day trial. May Allah reward you for supporting our work.